Okay, can we turn please to Romans chapter 8? Getting close to the finish line here. At least for Romans. Pastor Flegel. Good to see you. All right. Romans chapter 8. Before we get started, they're starting. This is May, isn't it? May 1st, so. Salvation Army Food Drive this month. And that's always very fun and an opportunity for our generosity. So during the month of May, we'll be collecting non-perishable food items and paper products for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army. And that that means, non-perishable means, please don't bring heads of lettuce like you did last year, Mike. So... (laughs) Because they don't last, you know, through the whole. Anyways. Um, canned soup, fruit, vegetables, cereals, and oatmeal. Canned meat and tuna, pasta and sauce, peanut butter, jelly, baby food, etc. So the list will be out on the information table. Another opportunity for <laughs> generosity. Okay. Yeah. Day of prayer. (laughs) That's every day, isn't it? I know, I'm kidding. No, it is though, National Day of Prayer, tomorrow. Okay. And then the fourth is, may the fourth be with you. That's, so, okay. All right. That's not my joke at all. That's a... Another silly, stupid joke. It's somebody. Let's, no, let's go to Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, please. We are on a subject of promeity. We're going to continue it tonight with some preliminary thoughts on predestination. And I might even take a little shot at Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, judgment because every once in a while we have to tackle the things that unskilled and unstable people say about things like that. All right, let's take a couple moments. Father, let us never take for granted the privilege that we have to meet together in this place and for this purpose so that we can look into the word, the endless sea of the word. May that sea be crystal to us tonight, clear. And as we look into the mystery of the law of the cross and as we begin to take preliminary looks into that, we pray that you'll ready us for greater insight and protect us from the rolling blackout that has covered so much of our own generation. We thank you that you are allowing light to flood in that has only been a phantasm in previous generations, but in this generation, we plan on it being a glorious insight. Recovering an insight that the early believers had And going even further, we ask these things, and we thank you for this anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen. Promeity is the doctrine, and it's based on the premise, God is God for us. God for us. God for us is the central declaration of Romans, and we are almost there, exegetically speaking, having come from the left and the right to the center. And we're in Romans 8.29 tonight. Romans 8.31. If God is for us is in a construction in the Greek text in which the answer is, or the complete translation is, if God is for us, and he is, emphatically. And we have to consider that if God is for us, and he is, in all these ways, all the ways that God is for us, And we started by looking into Promeri in prayer, the spirit 
pleads and makes intercession for us as he groans with unutterable groans. That's the intimacy of prayer. We've also seen promeity in the vastness of the cosmology, the design of the universe. The very design of the universe illustrates divine promeity, his being for us, his being for his whole creation. Providence, which is God's activity in history and the juncture of history and eschatology. Providence is also an immense declaration and proof of divine promeity. Sunday morning, we looked into the incarnation as a proof of divine promeity. Tonight, predestinational promeity, predestination, and I call it predestinational promeity. And we're just going to do a prelude to it tonight, an introduction, and maybe by Sunday get into the real heart of the matter. But we might even start to do that tonight. But Romans 829, and I also would like you to turn tonight in this prelude to predestinational promeity. That's kind of alliterative, isn't it? Prelude to predestinational promeity. Hebrews 2, 5 through 10. And oddly, this is a strange conglomeration of scriptural texts, Matthew 25. We're not going to be, not going to be reading the whole thing, but I have four Distinct points I want to make on that passage, which has become both famous and infamous, and it is used by those whom Peter and Second Peter calls in, calls unlearned and unstable, not educated in the depth of the scriptures, and unstable in their hope and faith. And they use that text, of course almost all the time, to prove their point that God sends people into a Christless, tormenting eternity. Which, of course, makes that, that conclusion about Matthew 25, 31 to 46, is evil. That interpretation is evil. And so we have to, to attack the things that are in the air today that are taking hope away from people or keeping the hopeless from finding hope, which is even worse. So Romans eight twenty nine. my translation so far, as many as God foreknew. Now, I'm not even going to exegete this tonight. This is a prelude to predestinational promantic, just what predestination is, who gets predestinated and why. As many as God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many siblings. Just a question, the word many, it equals all in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Does it equal all here? Just a question. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, that means called into existence. That's what that means, because if you go back to Romans 4, 17, he calls things that did not exist into existence. He calls into being things that were not. And so, as many as he predestined, those whom he predestined, he also called into existence. Existence, I would put in parentheses there or in brackets, as a new creation. And those he calls into existence or called into existence, the aorist tense is used, as a new creation. He also rectifies or justifies. And those whom he rectifies, he also glorifies. Now, I'm saying glorifies here because the aorist tense is very versatile. From the divine standpoint, if we see as God sees, and that's a very, very delicate path to trod, to come to see what God sees. What God sees, and from his standpoint, the same 
people, the same many whom he predestined. He has already predestined, he's foreknown, he's called, he's rectified, and he has glorified. So we would say that in a human past tense, for God is present to all these things being done. So we, if we consider this in connection with Operation Epsilon, which is seeing things eschatologically, then all this is a done deal. It's a five-linked chain that cannot be broken. In the view of God, these things are all done. So if you ask that question, and I've asked you that question, can many equal all here? I'm going to leave that question open for now. Now, where the incarnation in Romans 8.3 leads to many siblings, we can also see this in Hebrews 2. Notice that in the stretch of Romans 8, the incarnation of Christ, it's so amazing in the first three verses of John, John's prologue, he was always, the word hain is used, or ain is used. Ain means always was, always is, eternally exists. The eternal word eternally exists. He always was with God. He was in company with God, meaning that he was other than the Father, but equal to the Father in the inestimable rapport of divine equals. He himself kept on being divinity, God himself. And the word keeps on being used there, ain, which is me in the sense that he always was. He's pre-existent, self-existent, always exists as divine. But then the word agenito is used. He became. And in John 1, 3, nothing that ever became agenito became agenito without him. He brought everything into existence. But then he became agenito flesh. And we saw how becoming flesh, he entered into the interconnectedness of all things in order to redeem all things, all created reality in all of its times. That's a step in universal redemption that has not really been solidified in theology in the church age. And I think that's part of the light that's going to shine in this third millennium upon the church magnificently. But the incarnation then leads to many siblings, many siblings being conformed into the image of the son. But it's also the same thing in Hebrews chapter two. Karl Barth in his many volumes on church dogmatics kind of lamented the fact that there really hasn't been a commentary done on Hebrews as there has been on Romans. And Hebrews is a remarkable book. We get a hint here what it's all about in Hebrews 2.5. My translation, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Concerning which I am speaking now. Now the writer is telling us something in that passage. What he's speaking about is a world to come that is not subjected to or ruled over by angels, a world to come, an inhabited earth, an inhabited universe to come, that God has not intended angels to be the prime rulers of. And he's speaking about that. So what is one of the main themes about Hebrews? It is a world to come of which I am now speaking. In Hebrews 8.1, we get another hint about Hebrews. He said, up to now, what I've been saying, the main headline is this, that we have a great high priest in the heavens. And that is the human and divine Christ. And so, in the same in Hebrews 6.5, he's writing of a coming inhabited world, oikomene, in which miraculous powers and dynamics will be the norm. Miracles are God's norm. They're extraordinary to us. They're God's normal activity. And in Hebrews 6.5, the writer also says that we have tasted of the dynamics or the powers of the age to come, the age to come or the world to come. And so that becomes a major theme in Hebrews. Hebrews, just like all of Paul's epistles then, talks about the closing of a door on a temporal transient age and the opening of a door into an everlasting and glorious 
age, just like Paul's epistles. Verse 6, he says, moreover, somewhere someone has solemnly testified. I like this. I can picture the writer just kind of a little tongue-in-cheek here being a little bit humorous because people will often say, well, somewhere in the Bible it says. Somewhere in the Bible somebody wrote, and they're very vague. And this, this writer knows that his audience knows that this is Psalm 8 and verses 6 through 8 or 4 through 8. And he uses a little bit of a facetious spirit here. He says, somewhere someone has solemnly testified, quote, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 7, you made him inferior to the angels for a short time. That is, you put him in a position lower than angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. And in verse 8, and you ordered everything. By that it means you arranged everything in an order. And that word, everything, is, I refer to Sunday morning's message, ta panta. Paul uses it exclusively of everything, all of created reality without exception. There's, that's a sum total of all that's been created through all of time diachronically. And so it's everything, a brief history of everything. Tapanta. And that's used here also in Hebrews 2, 6. Or rather, verse 7, you, you made him inferior to the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and ordered everything. That means arranged in order everything to panta under his feet. That's Psalm 8, 5 through 7. There's, of course, a connection to Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. In subjecting everything to him, please notice what it says in verse 8. In subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. Nothing that is not subjected to him. I'm not going to take the usual path on this. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. This is a Bible study. Don't be nervous. 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Paul comes in. And there's a remarkable, remarkable, different kind of language, different kind of twist in Hebrews, but remarkable similarity to the Apostle Paul in Hebrews. Paul speaks similarly in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, except he adds a little twist. Notice what he says. For he, that's God the Father, has put everything under his feet. Now, there's a double entendre here because it's being used for man in man in the sense of mankind generally, generically, but it's used specifically for the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's applied both in Hebrews and 1 Corinthians. Notice what Paul then says. But when he says everything, panta, without the ta, panta, was ordered under his feet, or arranged in order, subordinate to his, under his feet. It is obvious that this excludes the one who subjected everything, tapanta, to him. This excludes the one who subjected everything to him. The father, obviously, is not a part of the created reality under the feet of Jesus Christ. So there's a tremendous kind of complementarity here in Hebrews 2.8, in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But in 1 Corinthians, this excludes, however, the one who subjected everything to him. Now, the father is accepted from being under the feet of the son because the son, as it says earlier in this passage, submits himself to the father, subjects himself to the father, and then God enters in that way to be all in all in all of creation. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, key verse. Where we're going, key verse. 
as Ephesians 1, 9 to 11 becomes a key verse. Then Paul adds then in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, notice where it goes. Now when everything, ta panta, will have been subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. That wonderful construction needs explanation, not tonight, but it's enough to suggest it tonight. Panta and pasen, panta and pasen, all in all, all things in all. God, the best description of this, doctrinally speaking, comes from Gregory of Nazianzus, and it was recaptured by Jürgen Moltmann at St. Andrew's Conference a few years ago, in which he called it universal perichoresis, a universal interpenetration of God with all of created reality and all of created reality with God, a mutual indwelling. And creation then is radically transformed. Don't think of restoration of all things as a restoration to the original creation. It's infinitely and immeasurably better. The creation under sin and death and slavery to decay when it's transfigured by God entering into it and becoming all in all. It doesn't just get back to a pristine condition before sin entered. It's immeasurably better than that. Unimaginably better. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it ever entered into the hearts of man. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. And we kind of prove that those who love him is everybody. The gift of God's love, his self-gift His self-gift is to everybody. Those who love God is everybody because God pours out the gift of his love upon all flesh. When the spirit is poured out on all flesh, everyone is filled with the love of God for themselves and their love for God. It becomes everybody. I've proven it in that message two messages ago, but we're going to have to look at that again when we get downright theological in the near future. So then, this profoundly universalistic language is parallel to Romans 11.36, in which the universal origin, the universal agency, and the universal homecoming of all things is attributed to God. He's the one who subjected all things under the feet of the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God. The precise construction is also used of Christ. This en pasen or panta en pasen is also used of Christ himself in Colossians 3.11 where the Greek text reads ta panta kai en pasen Christos. Christ is all and he's in you all. The whole idea of the ordering of everything under the feet of the son of man or the son of God, both is one person is congruent with a term that is is at least as important as apocatastasis. Apocatastasis. There's a term that is at least as important as this term. And I think it's a little more important because of the import of it and the, the extent of it and the eschatological extent of this term. And it's ana. Kephale, a'o, anakephale a'o, and that's found in Ephesians 1.10. That will be our hallmark verse, I think, for the next direction we're taking as an assembly. Anakephale a'o has in the center the word kephale, which means head. So we have everything under his feet. But we also have with Anakephalao, him the head of everything. And what an elegant complementarity there is again under his feet with his him being the head of all things. And that means that everything becomes his body in that sense. Not just a church, but all created reality becomes joined to him who's the head of all created reality. Anakephalao, Ephesians 1.10, describes the mystery of God's intention to sum up everything. And then it says, in Christ, this time not under, but en Christo. In 
Christ. So there goes the reasoning of some people. Yes, everything will be under his feet, enemies under his feet. So that means that a lot of people can be in hell under his feet. But Anakephaliao and Christos says everything that's not only arranged under his feet, but everything will be summed up in him. So how can you have everything in him and some things in hell separated from him? How are you going to do it? You see, we can even go, it's what I did there. You see what I did? I shifted gears. And I went from faith to reason. You can actually be reasonable about this. And there's been studies done. There has been one excellent study done. I'll be using it a little bit where reason is the only method used to describe universal restoration. And it, would, it shows it to such a degree that you'd have to be unreasonable to assume anything else or to propound anything else. In fact, you have to be siding with evil. So I might as well double down on this thing. The term anakephaleao in Ephesians 1.10 describes God's universal salvific intention to sum up everything, tapanta, in Christ, his Messiah. Again, at the heart of the word anakephaleao is kephale, the Greek word kephale, K-E-P-H-A-L-E. It can mean head, but it can also mean headline as it does in Hebrews Chapter 8, verse 1, kephale, head over all things. He's already made him head over all things, and proleptically, he's head over all the church, which is just a forecast of him being head over all created reality in all of its times. So kephale, which means head. God wills that Christ be the head of all things, and God wills that all things be ordered under his feet. That doesn't mean he orders it, get under his feet. It means that he arranges in order everything under his feet. Not under angels, but under man, the, the world to come. These truths are elegantly complementary. And by that I mean C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. The term that is employed for all things, again, is tapanta, which excludes absolutely nothing of created reality. And the exception is only the Father, who is uncreated, who subjected all things to him. And that means that only uncreated reality is accepted from being under his feet. All things means everything in created reality with no exception. And we haven't even begun to fully exegete Ephesians 1.10 yet, but we will. In the fullness of times is the phrase. In the fullness of times, God will do this. And that means when all times become simultaneous, and therefore everything in all of its times will be under Christ. And so even history will be redeemed. Even time will be redeemed. And that's not a strange concept to me when the Bible says redeem the time. Ephesians 5:16, Colossians 4:5, which means that we can redeem our time from loss. We can redeem it from loss. We can redeem it from evil a day at a time by Attentiveness to the word of God, for example. And so, that God orders all things under the feet of his son, and that the son is to be head over all things, are complementary truths. Universalism, and I'm going to be using that term because there's a history of universalism, even not only the first eight centuries of the church the majority of Christian theologians and preachers were universalistic. It got lost because of an emperor in Rome who didn't like it too much and wanted to have power back in the, in the hands of tyrants. And so they invented a hell doctrine, among other things. And then it was lost for a while. But there was always one or two 
people and a small remnant that held to the truth of the apocatastasis pantone, which is the trend of the prophets from the beginning. Good trend to be in. But there were times between the Reformation and the 18th and 19th century where it got much clearer, where I call it a phantasmic universalism. In other words, it's a vague concept. You can read some of the writings of the people. It's such a vague concept because they imagine it to be so. They can't quite pin it down. What we're doing is pinning it down and showing it to be true exegetically throughout all the scriptures without exception, and there are no scriptures that contradict it, even though some seem to, and people who use those scriptures to contradict it are without exception unskilled in exegesis and unstable in their spirituality, though they put on a pretty good show. They're just immature. Well, sometimes they're evil, but some, you know, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's have mercy. But I'm not going to have any mercy on that doctrine because Peter called it right. He said it's a damnable doctrine. So we're not going to have mercy on the doctrine. So then, universalism as a term that generally describes a doctrine of universal salvation or universal reconciliation is inescapable. It's a term that's inescapable. When you carefully read passages of Scripture like these, which we are currently speaking about, Now, because it's hard to dispute that everything is to be headed up and ordered under the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, I wouldn't dispute. I just read you two declarations that are explicit. It should be equally hard to press a doctrine of limited atonement or an atonement that's only limited in its scope. It should be hard to press such a doctrine or of a double predestination both of which imply that some, if not many people and things, will be consigned to eternal destruction or damnation. It's impossible to press these doctrines once you know the truth and once you see the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. So shifting back and forth from faith to reason, let me say this. If something is damned eternally and separated from God forever... It's hard to square that with everything being summed up in Christ. In and not just under. If it was only said under his feet, then you might be able to make a case, at least a temporary one, that the damned or those who are predestined to eternal perdition are under his feet as his eternal enemies. But it says, quote, to bring everything together in the Messiah, ta panta ento Christo. Ta panta ento Christo. That means everything, every being, including every human being. From this standpoint alone, how can you see on the horizon a double outcome of the last judgment? By double outcome, I mean some are eternally lost and others gathered into the joy of their Lord. Because that's the superficial reading of what Jesus parabolically brought out in Matthew 25. Remember, Matthew 25 is a continuation of his Olivet Discourse about things that happen in this generation, he said. This generation shall not pass away before all these things come to pass, including Matthew 25. 31 to 46. And somebody says, yeah, but you can make an eschatological application of that. Okay, we'll do that too. You want to do that? We'll do that too. We'll play your game. Unskilled, Peter called him. Peter, not me. Unstable. Readers of scripture who not only distort Paul, but Peter said they do with the rest of us. They, they're just habitual distorters. And more than often, more often than not, rather, they point to Matthew 25, 31 to 46. If you've talked at all to a friend or family member or the church that you just got excommunicated from, 
my brother in grace, Phil, was just talking to Pastor Peter Hyatt, who uh, speaks. He's the one that interviewed Ramelli recently. And he has a very vibrant church out in Denver. And he told Phil, he just got done teaching Revelation for a year and a half, and he was excommunicated from his former church because of what he taught from Revelation. And he found things like, do you know the word in the lake of fire that, that means burning or fire, that it means it's theon, and it means divinity, that the fire is actually God, and God is love. And he, So he taught, and he got excommunicated from his church. So if you've talked to your church, and they've, before they excommunicated you, they wrote down, and I, I also read about another pastor who went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I also applied for that in the 70s. I actually got accepted at Gordon-Conwell and Dallas Theological Seminary and then wandered up to Maine where I learned homiletics and boldness and courage. And then I learned exegesis from Colonel Theme, and now I don't know where the hell I am now, but we're doing something here. But anyways... So you might have presented it to the people just before they excommunicated you and said, well, we're going to read Matthew 25 to you. Really? Because they habitually refer to that passage. Habitually, they do that. I like that word, habitual, habitually refer to that. So... But they fail to recognize several things because they use it as an argument for a double outcome of final judgment. These are just a couple of strands of thought for you to think about. They fail to recognize four things. First, that Jesus is deploying apocalyptic imagery here still, just like he did in Matthew 24, where he talked about the stars falling from the sky, the sun turning black as sackcloth, the moon turning red as blood, and he used catastrophic cosmic language to talk about things that were going to happen in A.D. 70, things that would be brought about in the destruction of Jerusalem. Because to the people that happened to, that happened to them. Their world ended in that sense. So Matthew 25 is a continuation of the Olivet Discourse where he says these are things that will happen And there are people alive that are listening to me right now, Jesus said, that will still be around when these things happen. So it meant that generation, Matthew 24, 34. So he uses the language there of cosmic catastrophe to describe events that are slated to come about and have come about in the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So they, first of all, they fail on that level. Second, To use this passage to argue for the eternal damnation of the goats, they're called, when it is clear that Jesus is using the symbolic language employed in Ezekiel 34. They don't don't lock in to where this is coming from, Ezekiel 34. And not to see that Jesus' language is in Ezekiel 34, the prophet who prophesied that he would take out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, the universalistic prophet Ezekiel, Jesus was on, he was on Jesus' mind. For example, there in Ezekiel 34, God, the true shepherd says, I will judge between sheep and other sheep. He doesn't just judge between sheep and goats. He judges between sheep and other sheep. Now for that, that I would recommend Brian's whole teaching from Judges when I was away, Judges 2.18, about the judge who judges by saving and saves by judging And he did a fantastic development of that. In fact, there's something you did, Brian, in your bibliology, lenticular bibliology, that saved my posterior analytics about a certain subject called the Israel of God. Some night I just might do a message about how Brian's lenticular bibliology saved my Doctrine of the Israel of God. Now, you can tell I'm a little mischievous tonight, so I'm trying to control myself and not go back into my Adamic ontology language-wise. But anyways, it must have been because Patty's back. She's mischievous. She's a, Patty's mischievous. Pray for her. 
Um, trying to keep her from joining a strange movement. But um, the true shepherd says, I will judge between sheep and other sheep, between rams and billy goats. So, sorry, Billy. Where's Billy's out there? <laughs> but he, so he's judging, meaning he's making some distinctions, not only between sheep and goats, but sheep and sheep. So how, do you, how does that fit in? You know, I'm going to judge between that sheep and that sheep. And then he actually says, I'm going to judge between the skinny sheep and the fat sheep. So I can just picture the shepherd, good shepherd now. He's laying his down. He's going to lay down his life for the sheep, all the sheep. And this is what he does. Skinny sheep over there, fat sheep over there. Fat sheep, go to hell forever and burn in a blast furnace. Skinny sheep, come into the joy of your Lord and eat and drink and be merry. Not going to happen. God not only distinguishes sheep from rams and goats, but also sheep from other sheep. Remember Genesis 22? God will provide himself a lamb, but they turned and saw a ram because God distinguished between the lamb and the ram. The lamb, the ram wasn't the lamb. The lamb was yet to come. He's the lamb of God. The ram was offered instead of Isaac. In anticipation of the lamb. Why was it a a ram instead of a lamb? Was God lying or was Abraham lying? No. The ram was there because the lamb was coming. God distinguishes. So they also fail to consider that in Ezekiel 34, God the true shepherd says in verse 22, I will save my flock. And they will no longer be prey for you. He says to the nations, I will judge between one sheep and another. I will appoint over them a single shepherd, my servant, David. Of course, he's referring ultimately to the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself. This prophecy came over, came after David was dead. So he's talking about a David that's to come. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, Yahweh, the Lord, have spoken. Then he says in verse 25 of Ezekiel 34, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous animals in the land. He eliminates dangerous animals in the land, which is symbolically spoken of in Romans 8 as famine, sword, peril, Things coming, things below, things above. God destroys evil, but he doesn't destroy his creation. He doesn't say goats. He says he eliminates dangerous animals in the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them and the area around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season, showers and blessing. The trees of the field will give their fruit. The land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. We know that that, apocalyptically speaking, is sin and death and the sin hijacked law. They will no longer be prey for the nations and the wild animals of the land will not consume them. They will live securely and no one will frighten them. I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture They will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of the nations. They will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. He eliminates the dangerous animals then, not the goats or the rams, which are symbolic but he, re- he eliminates the dangerous animals, which are symbolic for the beings and things and non-beings and non-things that would threaten his elect. Romans eight thirty-eight to 39. He eliminates that which threatens his creation by transforming the evil into the supreme good by the mysterious law of the cross. That's something I've been waiting for seven or eight years for a book called The Redemption by Bernard Lonergan to be translated from Latin because I can't read Latin. And it came to my house. And thesis number 17 is going to be the basis for a Christological theology coming up, the mysterious law of the cross 
in which God transfigures the evil into the supreme good by that law of the cross. That's how phenomenal the cross is. We haven't even begun to understand the power of the cross. So God does not separate a skinny sheep from a fat sheep and send the fat one into eternal fire or the skinny one into eternal destruction. Furthermore, even when he distinguishes one sheep with a heart of flesh from another with a heart of stone, his intention, according to Ezekiel 36:26, is to remove the stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Not damn the person with the stony heart. So to use, this is still part, the second wave I'm doing on Matthew 25, 31 to 46. To use it as an argument that many people will go to hell is to argue against God's universally salvific intention, which is not only metaphorically and symbolically stated elsewhere in the scripture. But it is stated explicitly in eminently plain languages, language rather, in passages like Romans 3.23 to 24, 5.18 to 19, 11.32 and 36, 1 Timothy 2.4 to 6, Titus 2.11, Isaiah 46.10, 1 Timothy 4.10, 2 Peter 3.9, and, of course, Acts 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 19, Ephesians 1.9 through 11, Colossians 1.20, to cite a very small sample. And the ladies' notebook will give you a lot more of them. Now, that's two. Two things they, they fail to think about. Third, if a person were to read Matthew 25.31 to 46... As a depiction of the last judgment, even if you want to go there, the final outcome is not a double one, but a single salvific one. All of this is a prelude to predestination, incidentally. The goats who are sent into eternal fire for eternal punishment, you notice that? That very thing I just said is a terribly flawed translation, even evil. It's an evil... It's an evil translation. And the concordances kowtowed to Baal along with these translations. So don't go to Strong's and think you're going to get the right definition of eternity or aeonios, because you're not. Many of the concordances are in cahoots with those evil translated phrases. And a lot of this goes back to a Roman emperor named Justinian who didn't like universalism and wanted to use his little affiliation with the church to control people. So him and the church invented a little doctrine. Sometimes popes are idiots. Like if a pope were to declare an edict that Islam and Christianity are equal in their importance, say a pope did that. Well, then I'd say the Pope is an idiot in doing that. So if you're in a disagreement with me, I'll agree with you. He's an infallible idiot. Okay, so he's infallibly idiotic to say that. You cannot equate a religion, any religion, with the reality of Jesus Christ becoming man and dying on a cross and becoming sin for all mankind, what's equal to that? What's equivalent to that? What religion? So then, even if you were to read Matthew 25, 31 to 46, he's not talking about a double, but a single saving outcome. The goats are ascent into eternal fire. The word is not eternal in the sense of everlasting. And the punishment is not punishment, but it's actually the word colossus, which means purified. And the fire isn't eternal. It means literally fire from another world. And it doesn't even mean it lasts a long time. It's fire from another world that purifies. So if God had two sets of people and one got A's and the other got F's, he would say, you, the ones with A's, you can go over there and enjoy this. The ones with F's, take a remedial course. That's closer to what he's saying here. But 
There's an, I have an argument with a lot of the universalists, so I'm going to be going into a dialectic mode on that because many of them think that there are ages and ages in the future in which people have to be purified, which sounds like purgatory redux to me. And I don't buy it, and I don't, and I don't think the Scripture talks about people getting convinced by being in hell just for a little while. Hell is real, but it's only for a little while. What? That's just another level. It's a higher level of idiocy, but it's still, you know. But even if we were to say, so in other words, this is just really superficial. I just want you to hit a couple words. Purified, colossus, means go into the purifying fire that's a fire from another world. The fire is the fire of God's love. Our God is a consuming fire. He consumes that which is displeasing to him, which is never his creation, because when he saw his creation, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when he finished the original creation, he said, it's very good. So he only destroys that which is not very good for his very good creation. Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7 says the same thing. God's love is a fire that's hotter than Hades or hotter than any conception people have of hell. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, that man's works will be tried by fire. He purifies in order that in order that one would be saved. He uses a hypothetical case. Say a man is produces nothing good in his whole life, nothing at all, ever, not one time. He's like angel on the Rockford Files. Rockford's friends, Angel, never, you check out every episode, Angel never does anything without an angle that's turned in toward himself. He is incorrigibly curvaturae in ad se. What's going to happen to him? He's in, say he never does anything except to rip off poor Jim Rockford and do stuff for himself. It's fun to watch that show just because when Angel's on, you go, what a name for the guy anyways. Because God actually did prepare a fire for angels. The devil and his angels, he prepared a purifying fire for them. Oh. Hmm. How powerful is the cross to you? How far-reaching is the cross? What's the mysterious law of the cross? It not only does not leave its creation in its plight from angels to animals to amoeba, it not only restores them to their original glory as created beings, it goes immeasurably further in joining them to Christ and Christ to them and God being in them and them in God. There's no comparison. When we see him, we'll be like him. That's pretty heavy. For we'll see him as he is. We will know as we are known. Come on, think about it. So Paul writes about this fire, the same fire Jesus mentions parabolically, which is a purifying order in, fire in order that one would be saved. So even in the hypothetical case of a person who is only capable of evil and only did evil and never had his will liberated and never did anything other than that for himself, using people for himself, denying ultimate reality, what happens to him? He's tried by fire to be saved. Because there's no other foundation that anyone can lay but the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's everything. It's the same fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels who are also destined to be transformed into their original creation and even better. Because they'll be placed into a position where they cannot fall again. As man will, as men and women will. And there will be a retaining, in my view, at least in, from what I see now, the horizon I see ahead of us now, there will be a retaining of genders forever. In eschatology, then, the last judgment is not the last thing. It's not the last or the ultimate thing. We have the word penultimate. That means second to last. Penultimate, second to last. The last judgment is the second to last thing. The last thing is the new creation of all things for eternal life. That's the last thing, not the last judgment. 
In eschatology even, if you want to apply this, the last judgment is not the last or the ultimate. It's the second to the last and the penultimate thing. The ultimate thing is the making new of all things for eternal life and the mutual indwelling of God and of all creation in all of its times. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. That's the last thing. This is not just a restoration to the pristine status of creation before the entry of sin and death. This isn't Crosby, Stills, and Nash singing about returning, getting back to the garden. This is not just a restoration to the pristine status of creation before the entry of sin and death. It is a transformation and a transfiguration that is to be immeasurably better than the original. Fourth, in this parable, as in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is highlighting the solidarity of God and of Jesus with the imprisoned and the naked and the hungry, those who are disfranchised or ignored by the dominant culture of greed. God has solidarity with them. Even this does not exclude the dominant culture from salvation, though. Because, to use Moltmann's terminology, God creates justice for the oppressed and the victims, which I call vics. The police language is vics and perps. Perps are perpetrators or the criminals and the vics are the victims. Vics and perps. Vics and perps both are in God's saving plan. Because for the vics, he creates justice. And for the perps, he creates righteousness. So that justice is received by the oppressed and righteousness is received by the oppressors in God's overall plan of rectification that arises from the law of the cross by which God transforms evil into the supreme good as part of the universally reconciling, rectifying, and redeeming impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beside that, There's a vic and a perp in all of us. You find the perpetrators of oppression in history. You can study it. They oppressed certain peoples. The peoples they oppressed rise up and they become the oppressors of the formerly oppressed and are often more evil in their oppressed. The reason is not because of a social thing. The reason is the line runs through us all. There's a capability for us to be a tyrant and the capability of us to be a, a, a victim. And there's even the capability of us to be a whining victim. A cringing victim. And for some reason, people find a, a social advantage in considering themselves or portraying themselves as victims. Victims of their husband, victims of their wives, victims of their circumstances, their bosses, their children, society at large, Trump, the, big, the biggest scapegoat of our time, the easiest man for idiots to hate. But <laughs> consider, oh man, You still don't know where I stand politically by me saying that, do you? You still don't. You'll never figure it out. So, I'm with her and him. I'm with Shim. I'm with, yeah, whatever. Um, Now, consider all this. I've said all that to say that uh, this is a prelude to God's promenade. This is going to produce a walk-in to the doctrine of predestination which will be found in our next passage. So maybe, maybe Sunday, we'll see. But consider all this a prelude to God's promeity, or as being for us, as demonstrated in predestination. Remember the incarnation. Now, to go back to Hebrews 2, and we'll close. Remember the incarnation was with a view to Jesus' death, in which he, by the grace of God, tasted death. And what is death? It's the wages of sin. He tasted death, the wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, for everybody. Well, Beza, Calvin's student, and a few other of his students said everybody there means just the elect. 
And they developed this damnable doctrine, and it is damnable and it is evil, of a double predestination where God predestines some of humanity to salvation and eternal joy and some of humanity to damnation and eternal perdition and suffering. It's, there's no contingency either. He just says, they're going there, they're going there. What's that say about God? We'll tackle that. We'll tell you what, who's predestinated. I'll give you a hint. Jesus Christ was the one who was truly foreknown. First Peter one twenty. But this is a prelude. Now, here it is. The incarnation was with a view to Jesus' death in which he, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone without exception in order to bring many sons to glory. Many children, many sons to glory. If he tasted death, the wages of sin for everybody, then who's left out of the many sons whom he intends to glorify? Or, in one standpoint, has already glorified. Moreover, does the writer who everywhere concurs with or compliments Paul, does he also equate many with all? Because we know Paul did. Look at Hebrews 2.9. But we do see the one who was assigned a position lower than angels. We don't see, what we don't see is everything under his feet. Let me give you an assignment. Watch the news tonight for an hour. You won't see everything under his feet. But we do see the one who was assigned a position lower than angels for a short time, namely Jesus, not just mankind in general. Jesus was assigned a position lower than angels for a little time. A little over 30 years who through the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8 says he was just made a little lower than the angels and then crowned with glory and honor. But here he fills it in and said, namely Jesus, who through the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor, who by the grace of God tasted death in behalf of, for God is for us, for us, who bear, for us all, for all. He tasted death in behalf of all. For it was fitting for him, it was appropriate for him, for whom are all things, tapanta. And through whom are all things, tapanta. Nothing came into being without him. Everything that came into being came into being through him, and everything that came into being through him comes back to him. It belongs to him. In leading many sons to glory... It was fitting, God considered it fitting, to make the prince of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So, through sufferings, he was crowned with glory and honor. He becomes the predestinated one. And because he tasted death for everyone, all will be made alive in him. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. All this is just a prelude. Get you thinking, get you thinking, get you thinking about predestination. And then we'll see how God is for us with it. But I want to say a couple things about Hebrews in case somebody would like to do a commentary on it someday or a message or a series on Hebrews. Two things can be said about it. Number one, if you want to think of it as a symphony, it starts off on a remarkably universal series of notes talking about the universe as his garment, Hebrews 1, stretched out, etc. Notice Hebrews 2.9, tapanta, times 2, twice used. And in connection with the Romans 11.36, all things are by him, through him, to him. Secondly, second thing about Hebrews, it speaks of an age that's closing or has effectively closed. With the expiational Christ event, the event which Christ put away sin forever. And it speaks of an age that has opened and is in its inaugural phase and certain to be consummated. This two-age cosmology is the same as Paul's. But where Paul stresses the messianic king under whom 
all his enemies come under his feet. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the messianic great high priest who is the mediator between God and all of mankind, not some of mankind. So, Father, we thank you for this introduction. There are many suggestions in it in which we can discover answers in the future. This has been a message not so much designed to teach predestination, but a message that is designed to be a prelude to the doctrine of predestination, but even more so the doctrine of predestinational promeity, how you've shown yourself to be for us and to be universally for your whole creation through the wonderful doctrine of predestination. So wonderful is that doctrine, Father, that we recognize the enemy has tried to distort it into something of a double outcome of the last judgment, which is a horrific blasphemy and distortion of your grace. We pray that you'll allow the Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit to be wielded in such a way as to carve that doctrine into shreds and bring back hope to those that may have faltered and give hope to those who are in this world without God and without hope. 